You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the, these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Or may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this evening. Well, we live in turbulent times in many ways, and perhaps you look at your own life and it feels like a turbulent time. And in these uh, times, it's natural for people to cast around to find something or someone to put their trust in. 
We are called as uh, people of the Lord to put our trust in the Lord, to hope in him. Uh, but sometimes that hope uh, wavers and we are, are sometimes filled with doubts. And it's encouraging, isn't it, to look at Abram and see that uh, Abram here had questions. He trusted in God's promise and yet he asked, but how, Lord, how is this all going to come about? So the passage this evening is all about God's promise to Abram, God confirming his promise uh, about offspring, the promise of land, and really God is acting to stabilise and strengthen Abram's faith. So the Lord's already made uh, promises to Abram. We saw that in Genesis 12, and he's uh, reiterated them in, in chapter 13. But in chapter 15, we find the Lord confirms his promise to Abram uh, with a solemn oath by making a covenant with him. And then this covenant to um, Abram is really the, the organizing principle for the rest of the book of Genesis. Um, it's the organizing principle for the rest of the Pentateuch, um, Exodus and onwards. Um, it's, it's the organizing principle. The rest of the, the Old Testament flows out of this, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic. The New Testament flows out of this. And actually, it's the, the organizing principle for the whole of human history from here is God's promise to Abram as it unfolds and as we see it unfolding round about us in the world today. And so we come to, um, come to this and the text before us, it breaks into well, three parts. The first paragraph there deals with the, the promise of offspring, that's verses 1 to 6, and the second and third and most of the fourth um, paragraph deals with this promise of the land. We're given this uh, covenant ceremony within it, and that's 7 to 17, and then it ends with a, a summarizing statement at verses 18 to 21, as uh, this says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, to your offspring I give this land. So you have these two things, you have offspring and land, and they come together. Well, we start um, with this promise to offsp of offspring. Chapter 15, after, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. You think, well, after what things? Well, this links us back to the last chapter. If you can remember back to Kedileoma from last week, um, and um, God says to, to Abram, uh, fear not. Well, why might Abram be scared? Well, Kedalema has, has left the land. He's gone away. But Abram fears uh, that he might come back, that there might be a reprisal, um, that he might come back and raise Abram um, to the ground. And he, this it's linked back to the previous, previous chapter. Um, but... Uh, the Lord reassures him um, that it is he, that he is his shield. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And this confirms really the words of Melchizedek, who had said to Abram in the last chapter, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And the word delivered there is related to the word for shield. God was Abram's shield, his protector. And this image of God as a shield is an image uh, much loved um, 
by believers all the way through the scriptures. It comes up very frequently in the Psalms. Um, remember the Psalms of David, uh, or Psalm 3, when David looks at his many, many enemies and says, You, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And on through many of the Psalms, <coughs> God is a shield. And if you're in Christ, you can take these words to heart. God is our shield, our protector, our deliverer through the deepest trouble, through the deepest darkness. You can uh, put your own name here. Fear not, and put your own name in. I am your shield. But he goes on. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or an alternative translation would be as, as that found in the King James Version. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. So it's either that uh, God himself is a great reward or God himself gives the reward. Um, but the two, grammatically, the, you can't really decide between the two, but they reduce really, I think, to the same thing. If God um, himself is the reward, uh, God gives us, with God we get all things really, and we have all things in him. So Abraham, who had refused to take a reward from the king of Sodom, is now promised a great reward. God will bless and reward him, and God will bless and reward his people who trust in him, even as if they go through difficult times in this world. <clears throat> So the Lord reassures Abram here, and yet Abram is not sure. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God. He's addressing the Lord of, of heaven and earth. Uh, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Lot has left at this point, and his heir is someone else in the house who's joined the household, a, a servant in the household. Abram trusts God, but here he is wondering how on earth God's promises uh, are going to work out. And here is Abram. It's quite lovely, isn't it? He's, this, he's bringing his concerns, his troubles, uh, before the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And he's telling him about his troubles. And I think it's just um, wonderful to see uh, Abram here in conversation with the Lord, the last chapter, you very much have Abram, the man of action. But here we're taken somewhat into the inner life of Abram and uh, <coughs> the Lord coming down, communing, communing with him, and Abram unburdening his heart before the Lord. And, and there's instruction for us here. It reminds me very much of many of the Psalms where David is unburdening his heart before the Lord. And it's just a timely and a good reminder to us in different kinds of difficulties as we wonder how God is going to work out his purposes in our lives that we uh, are invited to call upon the Lord and to talk to him and pour out our heart to him. And the Lord deals with Abram in great kindness here. He doesn't just say, well, I gave you my promise, you know, what's your problem, Abram? He actually deals with him to reassure him and to comfort him and to strengthen his faith here. And so, verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. It's the second time this expression has come. It's an expression usually found in prophetic literature, in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. 
But the word of the Lord comes to Abram and he is presented as a, as a prophet, really. He's given this word about later on about the distant future, about what would happen to his descendants. And the Lord says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He took him outside and showed him the stars. And so the Lord who created the stars shows him the stars. And surely the one who created such a great host would have the power to keep such a great promise to Abram that his offspring would be uh, of the number of the stars of the sky or more. He can't, an uncountable number. And so um, Abram believed the Lord. Uh, literally, Abram um, amend the Lord. The, 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 the word he believed the Lord, the root of that is, is the word amen to Abram as if it were saying amen Lord. He, he amend the Lord. He gives the amen to what God had said. He's responding in faith to God's word of promise. It's not that he hadn't believed uh, the promise before, but here he's, the Lord is reiterating it and he is responding in faith. He believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. These great words, Abram, like us, was a sinful man, uh, was sinful. Uh, he was a man of many flaws, and like us, he had made many mistakes. And yet he trusted in God's word of promise, and God counted him as righteous. God looked upon him as a righteous man man. Well, it doesn't explain here how on earth that is in, how that's possible. How can a holy God count Abram as righteous when Abram is sinful? Uh, how is God right to call Abram right when he is wrong? How is God right to call us right when we are wrong? Um, well, we, we know from the rest of the scriptures that it's only through uh, the death of the promised Messiah, the death of Christ, and through his blood shed for us, that we are counted righteous in Christ, as we are united to Christ by faith, as we are clothed in righteousness. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans 4 famously turns back to these verses uh, to say, look, Abram back then was justified by faith in Christ. He believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. So it's just an example of how the Old Testament believers were justified by faith. They were counted righteous through faith. They were counted righteous through faith in the Christ who was to come, in the Christ who was held out to them in the shadows uh, of the, the, the ceremonial law and the different sacrifices and the promises of God. But they were counted righteous in, in, in Christ, the Christ who was to come, just as we're counted righteous in the Christ who has come and died and has risen again. So wonderful verses here, it, just there in the, in the middle of this passage. So if you've trusted in God's word of promise, in Christ, then you are righteous. <laughs> this wonderful doctrine of justification of faith, which is um, just a, a doctrine which should fill our hearts with great joy that God counts us as righteous. And he doesn't look upon our sins anymore. What great joy to remember this wonderful teaching of the gospel. 
So Abram, he looks up at this, uh, the stars and he receives afresh this promise of this uncountable uh, number, this, this promise of this offspring to come. <clears throat> well, the second paragraph deals with the promise of the land. And we have this um, strange covenant ceremony, at least strange to our, our understanding. To Abram, it would have made uh, a lot more sense. But verse 7, he said to him, to Abram, I am the Lord your God. Sorry, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And that might sound familiar to you. So later, the Lord says a similar statement. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Abram's life, we see again, foreshadows the life of his descendants. Um, but then we have Abram again being honest before the Lord, verse 8. He said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He looked around, he saw the land filled with enemies, he had the great uh, promise of God, but how on earth would these things work out? It didn't look like it could happen at all. And then um, the Lord says to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, female goat, and all these instructions about the animals which he's to bring, and then to to sever them, cut them in half, and lay each half against the other, uh, but not cu cut the birds in half. And some of these are then reflected at the beginning of Leviticus. You have the thing where the, the sacrificial animals are divided up, but the birds are not cut in half. And then the birds of prey come down. Abram drives them away. Well, to us, these things are, are, are quite strange. Um, but to Abram, it would, I think it would have made more sense that God was... Um, making a covenant here. This is the, the beginning of a covenant ceremony. So in the ancient world, kings uh, would make treaties and covenants with each other, and as they made these covenants, they would have ceremonies to, um, to, to bind them together, a covenant cer ceremonies to, to ratify these covenants. And so the different forms of this covenant, sometimes it would be uh, the suzerain, the great sovereign king, um, binding himself or binding a vassal king to himself. Sometimes covenants were made just between king and king. Um, but there would be the ceremony where they would take animals, uh, cut them in half, and then uh, typically both parties would walk through the bloody halves of the animals. So you have an animal on one side, animal on the other, and you walk through the, the bloody way through the, uh, through the animals. And those who, um, it was a, a pledge, um, really a pledge of death, and it has the character of a, a, a self-maledictory oath. Well, well, what is that? Well, really what they're saying is they're walking down the bloody way as they make these covenants, that if I fail to keep my covenant obligations, may it be to me as it is to these animals. And so the, the parties of the covenant will bind themselves in this way. And then typically afterwards have a, have a barbecue and roast meat and, and a sort of party to celebrate. And so you think, well, this is a very strange way of doing it. Why, why can't they just, I don't know, shake hands or perhaps sign a piece of paper to say, yeah, really, you know, why all this incredible you know, the death of animals and, and so on? Well, we need to remember the ancient world was a, a very dangerous place, um, a world of famine, of warfare, of marauding bandits, and um, 
here you, you make a covenant promise. Um, and when things get difficult, you might be tempted to break out of your commitment, to, to, to turn back on what you've promised. So you, you might make a promise to be loyal to another kingdom, but when the other kingdom is attacked, you might think, well, actually, I don't think I want to get involved in that. I think I'll just, just go off or just stay here. And a handshake wouldn't have been enough to bind them together. Actually, this, this um, covenant promise has, has teeth. You say, well, if I don't come and help, may it be to me as it was to these animals. It's a very um, just serious and, and way of binding yourself together with, uh, with another party. And there's, a, another, there's an interesting example of this later in the Bible. So in Jeremiah 34, there's an example of this kind of covenant making. So then, it's later in Israel's history, the Babylonians have besieged Jerusalem. The people had entered into a covenant that they would uh, release their Jewish slaves. So contrary to the, the law, they'd enslaved their fellow Jews. And, um, and they promised to release their slaves. Well, they did release their slaves, but they, they cut a covenant to guarantee that they would actually do this. But after they released their slaves, they had second thoughts, rather like Pharaoh, and they, they changed their minds and they made them slaves all over again. And then the, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jeremiah and says that the Lord will bring upon them the curse of the covenant. But look how it's described, and this is Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 20. It says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, whether that was all of them or just representatives, I don't know quite how that would work. Um, but I will give them into the hands of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the, beasts of the earth. That's Jeremiah 34, 18 to 20. You see the, the, the parallels there. So do you see that to, to enter a covenant was to enter into a binding commitment, a pledge unto death? So that's it. So Abram is, is getting everything ready for this covenant-making ceremony. Everything is prepared for it to sort of to actually do that ceremony, which we'll hear about what happens in a moment. Well, then verse 12, the sun is going down and a deep sleep falls on Abram. Um, and I think this is to show us, uh, it's interesting, it's a bit of a parallel with, with, with Adam. A deep sleep fell upon him when, when the Lord took Eve out of Adam. But here, at least, it shows us in, in this chapter that the initiative for what is about to happen is with the Lord himself. It is the Lord who is setting this up. It is the Lord who is guaranteeing this promise. Abram is very passive. Abram is, is put into a deep sleep um, there. So it is the Lord's initiative. He is entering into this covenant. And behold, um, verse 12, dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him, 
And the, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted 400 years, speaking of their time in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation they served, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions, just like Abram had come out with great possessions from Egypt. And so the Lord speaks of this exodus, which was a long way off, this long time ahead, this sort of great prophecy, really, about the future. Verse 15, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's this promise of exile and return, but also I think verse 16 is an important verse. It tells us something of the reason for this delay, this long period of time. Not only will it take 400 years for the descendants of Abram to multiply and become a great nation, but also it's a chance for those Canaanite tribes to, to repent and turn to the Lord. But, uh, but the Lord knows that that is not ultimately going to happen. And so it shows us um, the justice of God as he, as he waits for them to repent, but also um, finally the time comes when it is ripe for judgment to fall upon them, uh, and that time is when the time of the conquest. So the Lord speaks of Abram and, and his future, and it's a terrifying word, really. But then we have the, the actual covenant ceremony takes place. In verse 17, we find uh, when the, the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So now we find it's not Abram who walks between the pieces, but the Lord himself who passes between the pieces. This, the fire pot, um, is a sign of God's presence, just like the Lord would come down on Mount Sinai in, in fire and cloud. Here is the Lord coming down, um, and God's presence here, the Lord himself walking between these pieces. And so the Lord himself is binding himself to Abram. The Lord himself is making this pledge unto death. He's guaranteeing that he's bound to Abram and his descendants in covenant loyalty, in covenant love. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth is condescending to enter into this covenant with Abram. He promises to do uh, what he's, um, he is... He's made these great promises and he, he ratifies it here. And verse 18 is the summary, really, on that day, the Lord made a covenant, literally cut a covenant um, with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And the boundaries here of the land are interesting. These are the, the boundaries of, of the land of Eden. They're, they're bigger boundaries than Israel ever actually inhabited. Even under Solomon, they didn't uh, stretch this far. Um, so it points, to, I think, to the promise of a renewed Eden. Ultimately, it points to the promise of a renewed world, a renewed cosmos. He's giving them this land, and then the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and all the ites there. And so everything that God does in the rest of Genesis is tracing this promise of offspring. We're looking for the, the promise of a son, but then the book of Exodus continues this. It's all done in fulfillment to this promise. 
And so the Exodus generation could look back uh, to this prophecy and see that God did what he promised. He kept his oath. And what happened at Sinai is not something uh, completely different, but is an expansion, an extension of what happened here with Abram. Uh, and then the Davidic covenant, uh, as God's promise of a line of kings, is a continued outworking of this promise to Abram. It all comes in fulfillment of this oath. So everything that God does in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, he does in fulfillment to this oath made to Abram. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of this covenant promise. And we've seen that. Remember, if you remember back to the, how the, the book of Luke starts, um, that Luke, he's recording um, the things which have been fulfilled amongst us. And the early chapters of the book of Luke are all to do with fulfillment of various promises. And Zechariah spoke these words. He said, uh, which is, he said, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. And so God kept his promise. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And the new covenant is made uh, not with the blood of, of animals, um, but with the blood of Christ himself. Uh, Jesus said to his, is he, that this is the, the new covenant in my blood. He speaks of the new covenant being made in his own blood. So Jesus, the word of God incarnate, came down and he took upon himself the curses of the covenant. In the midst of darkness, while his disciples slept or were in terror, Jesus Christ was slain. He was the lamb who was slain. He took upon himself the curses of the covenant. And he died and rose again. And Christ, he's the great fulfillment of all the covenants. They all pointed to him. He's the great foundation of all the covenants, really. And so if we are in Christ, he has borne our curse. And he will keep his uh, promise. And so as we, as we close, as we think about these verses, I, I think that the main thing we just need to, to see here is that we worship and serve a God who makes and keeps promises. He'd made promises to Abram, and Abram wasn't sure, and yet we see he, he ratifies those promises and he gives this covenant ceremony, and then we see over the whole of the scriptures God keeps his promise. And so our response is to trust him, or should be to trust him, and to obey him. We live in turbulent times in many ways, and yet we need to trust his promises. We think of the dark and difficult times that God's people lived through, those 400 years of slavery, and it didn't look like God was doing anything. They had to trust in his promises, that the Lord would work out his promises unto the nations. So God keeps his promises, but we see, we see here that they work out over a very long period of time, 400 years, uh, he speaks of to Abram as his descendants. And so again, we're just reminded of our great need for patience, aren't we? A need for patient endurance as we look at the promises of God. These things 
take time. God, it appears, is not in a rush. He's faithful to keep his promises, but he is not in a rush. And so we need to look to the Lord, don't we, for uh, his faithfulness and consider that in our lives and really to build our own lives on these things. God is faithful to keep his promises. And as we, we worship him and as we know him and as we serve him, uh, we, are, we are made, created in his image. And so we should reflect that. We should be faithful to keep our promises, the, the covenants we make. Most obviously, the, I think the, the covenant of marriage, that binding commitment between a, a man and a woman in, in marriage, um, that's a, a covenant relationship. And uh, as a culture, as we've moved away from, from the Christian faith and Christian consensus, uh, our, our relationships are, are highly disordered. And, and that the idea of a, a, a union which is permanent and lasting and, and, and actually built on covenant promises, we don't, in, a, in many ways, don't even have categories to understand that. But ultimately, that's all based on what God has revealed to us in the scriptures, that God is a God who makes and keeps promises. And, and as we grow in discipleship, we should be learning to uh, make and keep uh, promises. But underneath all of that, and the reason we can do that, is that we serve a God who makes and keeps promises to us. We can trust in his unbreakable word and build our lives on it. And so we need to trust that, particularly as we go through challenging times and difficult times, that his promise to us is unbreakable, that his promise to uh, the world he has created is unbreakable, and he will work these things out. So let me close before I pray with words from uh, Romans 8, verse 31 through to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Oh, let me pray.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K for more.